I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, much has been written and said over the years about the FBI's Cold War era dirty tricks campaigns and counterintelligence operations against radical groups like the Black Panthers. One story in that vein, however, has seldom been told, namely the federal government's counterintelligence operations against American Maoists in the late 1960s into the 1970s. Believe it or not, one FBI report from the era even referred to American Maoists as a threat of the first magnitude. Joining us to tell the story of how the federal government responded to that perceived threat is historian Aaron J. Leonard, co-author with Connor A. Gallagher of Heavy Radicals, the FBI's Secret War on America's Maoists, now out in a new and improved revised and updated edition. So with that being said, let's get right to it with Aaron J. Leonard. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm really, really excited to be having on the show because he's written a number of books that I think my audience will find absolutely fascinating. Uh, Aaron J. Leonard, author of the books The Folk Singers and the Bureau uh, from 2020, A Threat of the First Magnitude, FBI Counterintelligence and Infiltration from the Communist Party to the Revolutionary Union. And the book we'll be talking a lot about today, which is Heavy Radicals, the FBI's Secret War on American Maoists, now in a revised and updated edition. And I'm holding the book up right here. Both of us did that at the same time. Stereo. That was well done. Wow. And also uh, a new book uh, that he has out is 
Whole World in an Uproar, Music, Rebellion, and Repression, 1955 to 1972. How are you doing today, Aaron Leonard? I'm doing well. And yourself? I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. I'm really interested in talking about these books with you. Uh, Just to get started, maybe you could talk about how you got into the subject of American radicalism, specifically in the 1960s and 70s, and the issue of state suppression of radical movements. Uh, What led you down this uh, sort of path? I think you had a a personal story there uh, with your involvement with the Revolutionary Union, right? Uh, Exactly. Um, So in high school, I mean, I'm just of the age, I guess uh, there's boomers and then there's boomers at the end of boomers. You know, interesting discussion in its own right. I mean, boomers get a lot of grief. Uh, But people, I was uh, like 13 years old in 1970. So I I was catching the tail end of uh, the 60s upsurge. Uh, I was in central New York. We started a uh, a radical group in our hometown, kind of based, well, it was based on the the mix of politics that was swirling around. I know there was the White Panther Party in Michigan, uh, John Sinclair, which kind of modeled itself after the Black Panthers. And everybody was uh, dabbling in Marxism, Leninism, as well as all this counterculture stuff. Uh, From there, I actually moved to the Northwest and met uh, the Revolutionary Communist Party uh, in the Seattle-Tacoma area. So I worked with them first in their unemployed group uh, and then in their youth group. And I stayed associated. You know, the, the Revolutionary Union was started in 1968. They changed their name in uh, 1975 to the Revolutionary Communist Party. I mean, a ostensibly they created a a new Maoist party. Um, But as I write in the book, I I don't think there was a big change between the Revolutionary Union and the Revolutionary Communist Party beyond the name. And and a few few more members joined, a couple organizations got incorporated. Uh, But I I worked with the group for a very long time. Um, And it's, uh, I guess it's akin to a marriage you stay in. And that you don't leave. (laughs) And then, you know, once you do leave, you say, well, geez, I should have left a long time ago. You know, a marriage that isn't working. Right. Um, Anyway. Yeah. So I left. uh, I left uh, in the mid aughts, you know, very late in the game. Um, And my colleague, Connor Gallagher, who uh, he came forward, I think, in the mid 90s doing youth work. You know, he was working with the group, too. He left around the same time. So both of us reflected on leaving like, geez, you know, what was this all about? You know, and I wanted to write a book to try to, uh, you know, make some sense of the experience and, you know, to, to basically justify all the years I put in. So the original idea was to just do a political history and, and sort that stuff out. But then as I dug into it, um, I started to do a more critical history, not in the sense that everything was wrong, but in the sense of scrutinizing it critically. Uh, and also discovered that there was this universe of information about the FBI that uh, had never really been looked at. I mean, people had looked at the FBI in the 60s, 70s. The FBI had this notorious program 
called the Counterintelligence Program, which uh, took things beyond just gathering intelligence to attempting to disrupt things. So there was a certain amount of revelations about COINTELPRO in the 70s, um, about especially the Black Panther Party, uh, some of the stuff against the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, a lot of stuff about Martin Luther King. Uh, but it didn't really, it, it really just scratched the surface of what the FBI was doing. And yet uh, it is, the received wisdom is, oh, it's all been revealed. Uh, and then, you know, what we discovered was that their effort against the Revolutionary Union, Revolutionary Communist Party was one of the biggest things they undertook in the late 60s, early 70s, probably for a just political organization not involved in political violence. It was probably the biggest uh, next to that of the Communist Party USA. And the Communist Party USA always had a special place of priority for the FBI because of its affiliation with the uh, then Soviet Union. So, so it was a very long road, not one I expected to end where it did, um, but you know, there it is. So I wanna get a little bit of background um, for this story that you're telling. Can you talk a little bit about the radicalism of the 60s going into the 70s? Because I think sometimes, uh, you know, People in my age group forget it really was a time of radical movements. And I, I would say it was more than just a passing radical uh, chic or or like a, uh, a sort of fashion statement. I think there were really committed radicals at the time and that the FBI and, and the U.S. national security apparatus was really uh, kind of worried about radicalism in the U.S., um, left-wing movements, peace movements. Uh, so could you talk a little bit about the era of the 60s uh, that this radical movement came out of? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's very interesting because um, there's all these, there's all this mythology and caricaturing. You know, you know, one thing I just recently discovered, so like a lot of people know this uh, prototypical hippie song, was done by the young bloods covered by a lot of people get together come on people smile on your brother everybody get together try to love one another i mean if anybody's listened to nirvana territorial pissings they open by uh, the drummer shouting that out in a really obnoxious sarcastic way okay interesting but the guy who wrote that song he wrote that song i think 67 68 like three years later, he wrote a song, What About Me?, which he says, I believe the revolution is mighty close at hand. You know, it's by Quicksilver Messenger Service. And this is where a lot of people, you know, this is the very uh, rapid road people traveled. You know, people had gotten the crap beat out of them uh, in Chicago in 68 and in, in, in Berkeley and People's Park, you know, protesting the war, you know, attempting to stop. Uh, troops from getting inducted people you know i was uh i was just seeing friends in seattle there were people who went into the army circa 70 71 basically to agitate against the war you know it wasn't just and there were yeah there were people who resisted the draft i have old friends and comrades who went to leavenworth for uh mutiny uh there was a huge uh 
the Revolutionary Union, Revolutionary Communist Party itself attracted a huge cohort of radical Vietnam vets who had, you know, been so uh, disenchanted and furious about their experience that they came back and and wanted to tear down the whole thing. Um, so, you know, there's an element of the, the six, you know, I mean, people know about the Black Panthers, uh, that they were revolutionary, that they had Mao's Red Book, that they were, you know, kind of way out there, suffered a lot of repression. Uh, they know about the Weathermen who, uh, you know, had very uh, sharp political rhetoric uh, and actually, you know, attempted to wage urban guerrilla warfare in the United States, uh, which on the whole, if you look back, it really didn't amount to a whole lot. I mean, their most sensational act was this tragedy where they were building a bomb in a Greenwich Village townhouse and it blew up and it kills three of their people. Um, I mean, a lot of what they did was that they left uh, incendiary devices, explosives in uh, in bathrooms, you know, because they didn't want to hurt people after that, you know, to their credit. But, you know, the weathermen are kind of held up as the prototypical radicals, even though, you know, they were really a kind of a few score of hardcore who right, were very, right. quickly, very quickly isolated and stuff. Yeah, but, people so, will know about that. They'll know about like Gene Seberg being targeted by uh, CoinTelPro. So they'll know about like celebrities that supported some of these movements. That, you know, it's interesting. The malice element is often less spoken of, it seems like. Yeah, well, like in the introduction to the second edition, I mean, I kind of take it up. It's been written out of history. I mean, you read all these memoirs and it's just not there. Or there might be a sentence or two and it's, uh, you know, it's just not right. I mean, Maoism was a huge deal uh, in the 60s and into the early 70s. It generated new parties and organizations all around the world. Kind of consciously, the Chinese were attempting to uh, establish entities to counter the Soviet Union, who they considered bureaucratic, corrupt, uh, even, uh, you know, even uh, capitalist. I mean, as yeah. They yeah, I was going to I was going to well, say, go can you give an idea of what Maoism was in the 60s as opposed to the other sort of, um, you know, uh, sex on the left uh, for people that are unfamiliar with this topic? Yeah, Maoism was relatively new. You know, Khrushchev, uh, the leader of the Soviet Union, famously denounced uh, Stalin in 1956. It was a huge turning point in the world. Um, you know, Stalin did a lot of you know, pretty awful things, um, which people had adherence to communism had uh, essentially reconciled themselves to by saying, you know, it just isn't true. And Khrushchev got up and said, well, you know, it is true. And it, it just really kind of shattered uh, what was left of the Communist Party USA. I mean, a couple thousand people kept on, but a bunch of other people just kind of drifted away and went into different kinds of politics. So in the 60s, you had this vacuum. You didn't have, you know, the the uni, you know, unilateral uh, cohesion of one communist party. You had, you know, a pro-Soviet trend, and then you had a pro-Maoist trend. You had Trotskyism, which had been around uh, for quite a long time because it operated separate of any particular state and government. Um, I mean, Trotskyism is a huge discussion, and I'm not 
the expert on it to discuss it. But um, I mean, they were there. They were a force. Uh, the FBI was concerned about them for sure. But the Soviet and the Chinese, you know, what's called the Sino-Soviet split was a very big deal uh, in from the period like 1956 into uh, right up into 66. And it was a hard break and it got very antagonistic. Uh, meanwhile, in China, you know, Mao, I mean, what's that Mao apart is he looked at the Soviet Union and he said, we don't want to go down this route. It's bureaucratic. And, you know, they seem to be extolling uh, things that are really not socialist and communist. We want, you know, a society that's run in the interest of the masses of people. We want to get rid of uh, production of commodities for profit and extracting, you know, value from people's labor. I mean, that was what he wanted to do in principle. He set loose this cultural revolution, which was aimed at, you know, realizing that, but it was also a power struggle for sure. Um, and, and it's, you know, it's historians are still debating what it was all about, but at its core, it was a youth rebellion. Mao said it's right to rebel. And he, you know, set loose these high school and college kids to challenge the older authorities. Um, in China itself, it was, you know, fraught in many ways, but it had a manifesto-like impact in places like France and the United States, where... And this is all... challenging, the, the, the sort of Western variant of Maoism is challenging both the Soviets and, you know, U.S. imperialism. Right, and you can see the appeal, because... In 1968, the Soviet Union sent tanks into Czechoslovakia. So, you know, that, that just didn't seem very cool at all if you were a young radical. That, that seemed very, uh, well, I, I think that the phrase tankies has something to do with, with that kind of stuff, right? So Maoism, and, you know, Mao had a whole, you know, Mao was a very uh, poetic uh, writer, and he, he just was able to... Uh, coin these phrases and slogans that, you know, it's right to rebel against reactionary and, you know, we need to differentiate contradictions among ourselves and contradictions with the enemy. You know, this was a guy who had been instrumental in leading a war that defeated, you know, Chiang Kai-shek, the local reactionary nationalist, and that helped defeat the Japanese. And, you know, he did it, you know, in concert with a party that led, you know, millions of people. You know, so he learned a lot of things and these precepts were being taken up, you know, and contrary, you know, in contrast, Che Guevara had this view of, well, you can make revolution happen anywhere, but you just go in there and uh, kind of set an example, you know, whereas Mao said, no, you have to rely on the people. So there was some bedrock to Maoism that was uh, very consequential. I would argue it's still something to not discount. And I'm not saying, oh, it's going to come back or anything like that. I can't make those kind of predictions. But there were some very hard-learned lessons that Mao and the Chinese communists learned uh, that held an appeal because, you know, they, they corresponded with reality and, and they are actually successful. You know, there are still a lot of Maoists in the world. They don't get talked about, um, particularly in places like India uh, and Nepal. And, you know, they run the gamut of what they think and who they are, but uh, it's still a thing, but it doesn't, it isn't in the uh, 
in the um, mainstream history of the United States. Uh, Julia Lavelle just wrote a book on Maoism in England. It was a big deal because there was no book like it. Uh, so it's, uh, I think when Mao died and China kind of became much more conservative market economy, um, the powers that be were, were just, okay, good. Let's just stop talking about this guy. You know, it's to our advantage. So in that sense, that's one of the ways in which I guess the history of Maoism becomes obscured later on. Yeah, exactly. And uh, which is why, you know, when you talk about the 60s, I mean, you know, in, I think it's 71, 72, Congress produces this, it's several hundred, or a couple hundred pages, America's Maoists, and it's a documented uh, testimony and records of the Revolutionary Union. And the split off Venceremos, you know, the Revolutionary Union had a split in early 71 where, uh, you know, it was two roads. Uh, Label Bergman, who was this old Communist Party member who was instrumental in forming the Revolutionary Union, uh, him and, and Baba Vakin and others in the leadership of the Revolutionary Union were saying, you know, revolution is possible, but it may be decades off. You know, we can't just make it happen. We have to uh, go into the working class and, and base ourselves and build an organization and, you know, firm up ties and, and kind of be in for the long haul of doing the strategic work. And when an opportunity arises, hopefully we'll be ready to make this, you know, communist revolution. Uh, yeah, they were Frank pushing, I, I was going to say, they were pushing uh, their members to go into the factories and work at the factories and organize. Yeah. Yeah, and people did. Um, people did. And, uh, you know, I mean, the irony is they did it at a point where deindustrialization was just beginning. I mean, and it would, by 1979, the U.S. hit its peak employment in manufacturing, and it was all downhill from there. But actual deindustrialization had begun in the 60s. So people are going into the coal mines. Uh, into the steel plants, into the auto plants, you know, and, and it's, you know, by the 80s, these places are all disappearing. But in the 70s, they're going in. You know, you've got a lot of old time workers who are World War II, Korean vets, very conservative. But then you've got these Vietnam vets and these young, you know, counterculture influenced student, radical influenced youth going into the factory. So there's a element of ferment. So people like Bergman and a Avakian and uh, others are arguing, you know, let's go to the factories. And then you've got this guy, Bruce Franklin, who is a Stanford English professor saying, well, you know, we actually have to introduce elements of uh, revolutionary action now. I mean, he wasn't saying we need to do a revolution, but, you know, we can't just wait for Revolution Day before we start doing stuff. Uh, so there was a, you know, essentially he was arguing for, uh, you know, turning it up, you know, maybe maybe not to 11, but at least 10.25 or something like that. Uh, so there was a schism, you know, and Franklin went off and joined with this group, Vence Ramos. It was, um, it was a Latino white group, but it seemed like Franklin was really kind of the driving force. Uh, they didn't last very long in a document that in the book they they got ensnared and related to uh, a uh, 
incident in, in China where people associated with their groups were uh, implicated in the killing of two guards to free a prisoner. Um, so, and after that, the raids, the FBI raids and the repression were hot and heavy. And Franklin then just, Franklin just then, I mean, he stuck around for a little bit. Uh, when he reemerged, he was teaching English as a professor. And, you know, he, I mean, he still did and does political things. I think some of his books are probably very helpful, but he basically, uh, that was the end of him as uh, an iconic revolutionary the RU, on the other hand, continued, uh, and they continued, and, and they, you know, actually grew uh, to a degree in the first years of the 70s and such. That's interesting, because I think, you know, people today, I, I think they look at these groups and just think, oh, isn't that that Bob Avakian stuff? And I think it's sort of looked at with this sort of like smirking condescension nowadays, um, you know, uh, but th this was like a growing movement at that time. Yeah, you know, it's um, it's funny, you know, because uh, in the 60s, you had this character, Gus Hall, heading the Communist Party USA. And he's the leader of a group that has, you know, maybe a few thousand members and cadres. Well, you know, back in 1949, he was on the leading committee of a Communist Party that had... Uh, upwards of 80,000 plus members, you know, and, and there were a huge focus of political repression. You know, Gus Hall was, you know, in uh, convicted of violating the Smith Act, which said you can't advocate revolution, you can't advocate the overthrow of the government. And the Smith Act was later, uh, um, basically, it wasn't revoked, but it was kind of neutered. Uh, Gus Hall actually went underground for a while and actually was quickly captured. But he used to be part of this huge, big thing, right? Well, I think there's an analogy with Avakian. I mean, first, well, Avakian isn't Gus Hall. Um, the CP in the 60s didn't, you know, advocate revolution. They were very uh, working the left end of democratic politics, and they were very much pushing the interests of the Soviet Union. But, you know, He's on top of an organization that used to be a big deal, and it's not a big deal. Well, I think that's kind of the thing with the vacant. I mean, it, it, the RCP was never as big as the Communist Party, but it used to be substantial. Um, and now he's he's head of an organization that's extremely small, and it's kind of a joke in the left, um, you know, because the vacant has settled on this notion that uh, – if people understand he is a singular revolutionary leader, that'll be a catalyzing force to, you know, cohere people. I mean, that's the view. It's not working. Um, and, and in fact, it's kind of giving rise to ridicule and stuff. And I mean, the, th the thing with that is I, I always try to be careful because uh, it's very easy to make fun of him in that group. Um, at the same time, there are some hard right forces that, uh, would very much like to, you know, they can use the RCP as a good foil. I mean, they're the, the, the uh, what's the word, the composite of this radical socialism that they've all got to bug up their butt about. So, you know, I think people need to be a little careful when they go after the RCP that, you know, that they don't aid and abet the, these forces that are really fucking bad. Um, so...
Before we get into the state repression element, could you talk a little bit about uh, Vietnam veterans against the war and also the anti-UAC protests? And for people that don't know, that's the House on Un-American Activities and the protests against it. Well, I mean, there are two different things. You know, the House on American Activities Committee had run roughshod over people uh, throughout the 1950s. You know, they'd call you in, they'd ask you to name the name of, of communist friends. If you didn't answer, they could hold you in contempt. You know, I mean, and if you uh, pled the fifth, then by implication, you were admitting to, uh, you know, communist affiliation by your silence and stuff. Uh in 1960, there was something called the HUAC riot in um, San Francisco, where police turned fire hoses on these students who were trying to get into the hearings. It was a huge kerfuffle, um, and it had the effect of kind of saying to the country, you know, this HUAC stuff, it's done. You know, we we just can't keep doing this this way. I mean, it, it went on, it continued. Uh, the committee changed its name to the uh, I forget the name off the top. It's in the book, but uh, it was a more nuanced name. Uh, so, you know, its activity continued, but its name changed. Uh, Vietnam Veterans Against the War, you know, they started, I think, back in 68. Uh, but by the early 70s, they become a very big deal where uh, they had this demonstration in 1971 in the Capitol where several thousand vets threw their medals onto the steps of the Capitol building, you know, basically saying, you know, we're, you know, we were used and we didn't like what we did. You know, one of the, one of the people said, look, if we, you know, I don't want to fight again, but if, if I have to fight, it'll be to take these steps. Um, there was a hardcore element in the leadership of VVAW that actually uh, fused with the revolutionary union. I mean, the, I mean, it was, it's controversial. I mean, I think there was probably some underhanded, maybe unprincipled, you know, organizational tactics involved. But uh, VVAW, you know, the leadership essentially became, came into the RU. So, you know, the RU actually led that group uh, from like 73 into right up into about 77 when there was another schism. But, uh, and, you know, it's I mean, some of these dudes, and I think there were some women, um, did some very heroic stuff. Um, like I said, an uh, old friend of mine was uh, involved in a mutiny at the Presidio where somebody had been killed in the, the jail at Presidio in San Francisco, and the prisoners held a a sit-down strike when singing We Shall Overcome, and they were charged with mutiny and set to Leavenworth Prison. Um, you know, others were combat veterans who, you know, came back and said, you know, we're not doing this anymore. In fact, you know, we're we're going to try to undermine the actual system that sent us to do these things. You know, it's very profound stuff. So, so in terms of state suppression, uh, and that era of the Cold War, where, you know, I, I think people think of that era and think, oh, the Red Scare and, uh, you know, uh, the state just went after these uh, sort of, you know, well-meaning uh, liberals that weren't actually communists, but they did go after actual radicals as well. And I'm I'm not saying that in a way that, like, 
um, bolsters the like right wing narrative. But could you talk about the ways in which the state sought to suppress um, radical activists, particularly the Revolutionary Union or the Revolutionary Communist Party? You know, it's a good question. Um, I kind of think people need to uh, my advice to people is, is try to watch a little less TV news you know, and and read a little less of the New York Times and, and you know, things like this. I mean, don't not read it, you know, pay attention, but don't take that as reality. You know, everybody's got an agenda. I mean, I was telling a friend, the New York Times, if you look at it as the Democratic Party newspaper, you actually see it in a whole different way. So the narrative of the, of the Red Scare, the, the thing most people see is this... Uh, kind of Democratic Party um, uh, summation. Well, it was the McCarthy era. See, you had this Senator Joe McCarthy, who was an alcoholic and a blowhard, and he accused all these people of being in government who were communists. And he held these hearings and he destroyed some lives. And then Edward R. Murrow, this journalist, went on TV a couple years later and said, you know, enough is enough. You know, Joe McCarthy's you know, full of baloney. Um, yeah, and then there was a lawyer in there somewhere who said, "Sir, after all this, don't you have any, you know, dignity?" I'm, I'm mangling the quote, you know, but you know. And then McCarthy is amended, and then you know, all these poor liberals who had been targeted were uh, left alone. That's the narrative. Well, the reality is, uh, you know, the U.S. and the Soviet Union both won World War II, and in 1947. The United States said, you know, we are not going to let the Soviet Union go unchecked. You know, we've got this Truman Doctrine. We're going to challenge them. And we are not going to abide uh, communists in this country who helped us win the war. I think something like 13,000 communists actually went into the army. You know, we're not going to, like, cohabitate with them anymore. They're not allies. The Soviets are not allies. And we're going to, uh, we're going to, if we don't, outright destroy the group, we are going to basically neuter them so that they don't have any effectiveness. You know, they started by doing the uh, Hollywood 10, where they had a bunch of writers called in front of Congress in 1947, who they sent to prison for a year. You know, they had their cards. These were actual communists. Uh, And then they followed that up with a, a riot in Peekskill, New York, where American Legion and other reactionaries, you know, beat the crap out of communists trying to have a Paul Robeson concert. I mean, there's two events. It's a long story. And then they indicted the leadership. I mean, the the feds went into 12th Street, where the Communist Party headquarters was, and arrested the leadership of the party. They put him on trial. They convicted him for advocating the overthrow of the government and sent him to prison for five years. And by the time they came out, the world was different. And then, you know, that was just the first of many waves. Um, the Communist Party itself had to go, un- you know, had to or did go underground to try to withstand all that. I mean, whether or not they should have is a, a debatable point. You know, the party shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. To be a communist in 1952 was, you know, was about as socially acceptable as being a pedophile. Um so, you know, that's the history, you know, and people say, well, in the 60s, Hoover was still talking about communism and he was deluded. Well, he, you know, 
there was still a communist party and it still had ties with the Soviet Union. And then he saw this new thing come up, you know, this Maoist group. First, uh, there was an organization called the Progressive Labor Party, which had kind of the uh, uh, um, the seal of approval of China. It lost it because its politics changed. And then in 68, this new group emerged, the Revolutionary Union, which was pro-Chinese. And Hoover said, we need to watch this and we need to get informants in there right now. Now, the FBI had this doctrine is the way to infiltrate the group is when it's starting up, when there's less skeptic skepticism and the hierarchical lines aren't as hard and you can get people in. And it turns out, you know, that doctrine actually goes back even into the 50s or even into Lenin's time, you know, the, the security agencies you know, their chief prize is to try to get somebody into the leadership of the groups they're trying to undermine and stuff. So, And, and I was going to say, too, just real quick, because uh, I don't know if we mentioned it earlier, but uh, these groups we mentioned earlier, like the anti-UEC protests and the uh, Vietnam veterans against the war, this is all connected. They're tied in with, um, you know, the heavy radicals that you talk about in the book. Ex yeah, exactly. You know, uh, one of the people who's testifying at the HUEC uh, riot in the early 60s is Label Bergman. You know, Label Bergman had been in the Communist Party in the 30s. Uh, he had quit the party when Khrushchev denounced Stalin. You know, he was a hardcore Stalinist. Uh, he had went to China, uh, where he lived for several years, along with his... Uh, uh, he met um, and married a woman there who... Uh, I'm having a, a mental slip, but she was uh, Vicky. I'm sorry, I'll have to look it up. My apologies. But, uh, you know, he was in China, uh, you know, when the Cultural Revolution was going on. And he came back to the U.S. more or less motivated to join with the young radicals, particularly in the San Francisco Bay Area, to form a new pro-Chinese entity. So Vicky Garvin, he met Vicky Garvin in China. Uh, Vicky Garvin was an African-American woman, a CP, an ex-Communist Party member. Uh, she had helped organize Malcolm X's uh, trip to Africa after he had left the Nation of Islam. So, you know, Bergman is a heavy radical. You know, he's he's kind of unrepentant and he's out to start something new. And he meets with people like Avakian and uh Bruce Franklin and Mary Lou Greenberg uh, and others, and they form this group, which gets big pretty quick, you know, relative to today. I mean, they had chapters in San Jose, San Francisco, in Richmond, California. They were starting to go into uh, uh, industry and such. You know, people were starting to work uh, in transit uh, in, in, you know, other other industries, so they were they were starting this whole new model, a brand new organization that you know, you know, had it never got to be huge, but uh, they probably had around a thousand cadre at their uh, at their peak, and that's you know a thousand cadre, and then probably you know ten thousand or so supporters or or what have you. I mean, the new communist movement I've since discovered is. Uh, this, this movement that uh, arose in the 70s that was ostensibly Marxist-Leninist, some held to the views of Che, some to Mao, some a hybrid. It actually was not as big as uh, 
uh, a lot of people might have thought. Um, but the RU was actually the biggest, always was. Um, and it actually operated more as a party by 73 than, you know, the, the party that actually, the parties that actually got declared later on. So then with regards to uh, sort of FBI dirty tricks, uh, could we speak a little bit to the specifics of that and maybe talk a little bit about a character who comes up in this book quite a bit, uh, Donald H. Wright? Yeah, so Don writes a trip. Um, well, first off, so there is a counterintelligence efforts against the RU. Uh, they attempted to uh, divide Label Bergman from uh, Bruce Franklin. You know, they they wanted Bruce Franklin to go to Vancouver and meet with a Chinese agent who was actually an FBI operative. Uh, you know, to create a divide, you know, tell him that label was, you know, kind of off the reservation and not reliable. There, there were a number of things like that. There was uh, efforts to say that uh, one of the young members who had been to China and lived there during the Cultural Revolution, he was getting, uh, he was getting drafted. Uh, but and there were efforts to say, oh, he was a snitch, you know, when he. You know, he came and he was talking to us or something like, you know, something along this line to try to discredit him and create divisions. And, you know, these things don't seem to have been fully effective, but it's hard to gauge, you know, some of the stuff we just don't know. Um, but then Don Wright is an interesting, we didn't expect this. Like we knew that within the first several months the group was operating, there was an informant on its leading committee this uh, veteran of progressive labor party, because label Bergman had brought in a few of these old communist party veterans who had drifted to the progressive labor party and they got disenchanted with progressive labor. And they, they did a core for the RU. One of these people was uh, an informant who stuck around for a couple years and left. Uh, but around the time of the Franklin split, this new guy comes around in Chicago and he says he is a Black Panther member and a member of this super secret organization uh, that is a pro-Chinese faction within the Communist Party USA, which is, you know, nuts if you think about it. It's, uh, you know. This Communist Party USA is pro-Soviet. There is no room for Maoism. There is like bitter, bitter internecine sectarian fighting. Uh, they they say, oh, we're in here because we're trying to sway people. Uh, turns out, it, so this guy Don Wright says, oh, I'm part of this. I'm part of this thing, and it's called the Ad Hoc Committee for a, first it was called the Ad Hoc Committee for a Scientific Socialist Line. And then it was called the Ad Hoc Committee for a Marxist-Leninist Party. Uh, so those were his bona fides, you know, for revolutionary background. He's a black man, part of the Panthers, and part of this. So he's like, this This is beautiful. This, is, this guy's already a Marxist-Leninist, you know? And he joins the RU, and he quickly ascends to, you know, the National Interim Committee and then the Central Committee, and then he becomes part of the secretariat, which is the four-person day-to-day operation of the Revolutionary Union. And, uh, you know, what I discovered 
uh, with Connor's help is that the ad hoc committee. So I was searching, you know, <laughs> I was searching ad hoc committee. And then I had the name of this, this FBI agent. Uh, so I put in those two terms in a Google search and the FBI agent's personnel file comes up because it had been released. And in it is, oh yeah, I had the name of this guy, Herbert Stallings. He's an FBI agent and he seems to be their, uh, their resident Maoist expert. You know, he's done papers on the RU uh, where, where he knows ideologically what the group is all about. So, and then I had this term ad hoc committee and I put the two together and the personnel file of Carl Freeman comes up. Carl Freeman is uh, the supervisor of uh, of the resident expert. And in it, it outlines the ad hoc committee program, how it's a notional group that is totally the FBI that exists only in paper. You know, we've later learned that it's actually seven FBI informants who are going around telling people we're part of this ad hoc committee. They're recruiting people, but they're really just recruiting informants or they're, you know, I mean, they're recruiting people that they can influence and stuff. I mean, there, there's this one absurd thing where one of the ad hoc informants tries to recruit an FBI informant, unknowing that he's already an FBI informant and the FBI informant, not knowing that the ad hoc guy is, uh, you know, that old, that old Diddy McTavish is dead and his brother don't know it. His brother is dead and McTavish don't know it, you know? Um, yeah, that kind of thing. So uh, that's what Don Wright is. He's part of this thing that's, doesn't exist. So that's pretty bad. And then we start to document all this, uh, all these times where, you know, Don Wright is implicated in doing sketchy things. And, you know, we've since got this. I mean, this, this is like uh, <laughs> through the looking glass kind of stuff. There's this CIA agent, CIA agent, uh, codenamed Sugar is an African-American man who was in the uh, Fair Play for Cuba committee, but he leaves that. He's not a CIA agent at that point. He's just a guy. He goes to Europe, but he offers his services to the CIA. And uh, so he's like operating as a CIA source in Europe while being a journalist. Um, and he sends a report saying, hey, I met this guy, Don Wright, man. And he's like... Uh, tells me he was in the Black Panther Party and the ad hoc committee. And, you know, you, you might want to check on him. And in the in it's the FBI note is, oh, we know who the guy is. <laughs> you, know, you know, we know. And then they give a little FBI uh, informant code. So, you know, Don Wright's their guy. And he is operating on the highest level of the RU. And he's making trouble. You know, the RU is trying to unite with the uh, former young lords uh, who are now called the Puerto Rican Revolutionary Workers Organization and the Black Workers Congress and this group, Ivor Kuhn, which is Asian. So these, I mean, they're called third world groups by some, but these non-white groups, I mean, the RU is white and Asian and it's white because it had a conscious policy to not recruit people away from the Black Panthers. I mean, the aim was... The RU is going to grow to maturity. The Panthers are going to grow to maturity and we're going to join in and, and become one single party. Uh, that didn't work because 
the Black Panthers were uh, they were all over the place ideologically, um, and they were into stuff that was, um, you know, attracting repression on a grand scale. Some of it, you know, just totally uh, not their fault, and just because of who they were, and, and some of it was shooting themselves in the foot. Um, but the RU ended up being white. You know, not you know by design. You know, it wasn't supposed to end that way, but it was supposed to evolve into something else. So, you know, in the in circa seventy two, seventy three, when they're trying to unite these groups into a multinational party, Don Wright essentially sabotages it. Says, "Oh, you know, I don't think we're ready for this, or if we are, we ought to kind of discreetly atomize the nationalities in a." The net effect is that that the attempt at coalition falls apart, and you know Don Wright you know plays an important role in that. Turns out none of these groups are actually that big, you know, in in hindsight, because in seventy three things are starting to calm down. The Vietnam War is over, the major riots, you know, are by and large over. Um, the U.S. is defeated in Vietnam, and it goes into this period of uh, retrenchment. The last for a few years until the end of the decade when, you know, the start of the end of the Cold War begins and stuff. But so, you know, Don Wright is just he's just a trippy character uh, who uh, kind of gets over. I mean, he plays the uh, I think what you would call him today, racial politics in such a way that it's a very disruptive thing. Um, so I was going to say it's really interesting uh, that this goes on into the 70s because, you know, people think uh, about the FBI's, uh, I would say, malign activities under Hoover. Uh, Hoover passed away in, I believe, 72. Uh, but, you know, there's still activities by the FBI against radicals into the late 70s, right? I mean, we have that FBI assessment from 1976 that you refer to uh, that famously says that the RCP and the organizations most closely associated with it were a, quote-unquote, uh, a threat to the internal security of the United States of the first magnitude. That's in 1976 the FBI is writing that. Why was the FBI so concerned about the activities of these Maoist groups? Well, I, I think it comes down to the fact that Mao Zedong was still alive. And Mao, for all his... Uh, shortcomings was a radical. Uh, and he was, I mean, the U.S. and China were reconciling. There was rapprochement and Mao was instrumental in making that happen. But he also was uh, committed to keeping China uh, being this radically socialist country. Now, he was opposed by people like Deng Xiaoping and Hua Guofeng, who wanted to modernize and build up the economic base and take China in it to becoming a great and rich country, which is actually what we are looking at today. But in 76, Mao doesn't die until September 9th. You know, so to be a Maoist uh, in 76 into 77 is to still be a revolutionary. Um, and that's a problem, you know, and it's it's a problem of a different order than the Communist Party USA. The Communist Party USA is a problem if the U.S. squares off against the Soviet Union. Uh, and, you know, the FBI kept their custodial detention lists open into the early 70s, where they were going to put a lot of people in detention if there was some kind of national crisis like war. I mean, people 
have a lot of illusions about this, but I mean, because, you know, we've been through the Iraq, two Iraq wars and, and things like that, and there were not mass detentions. But, you know, in World War One, if you were opposed to World War One, you went to prison. In World War Two, if you, you know, advocated against the government like the Trotskyists did, you went to prison. Uh, a country, you know, I mean, people say, well, Putin, all this repression in Ukraine, I'm not weighing in on that. I don't want to sidetrack it, but uh, Putin has all this repression, you know, you know, people can't be against the war. Well, that's what countries do when they go to war. They become highly repressive is because it's a life and death thing for them. We win the war or we lose the war and we can't have people, you know, being a burr on our side on this. So. Yeah, I was going to say Eugene V. Debs was thrown into prison in yeah. 1918. So, yeah, we just haven't lived through that kind of thing. I mean, people in the Vietnam War went to prison, you know, routinely. If you didn't show up for the draft, you went to prison or you went to Canada or you went to Vietnam. And if you opposed it, like I said, you know, you would go to Leavenworth. Um, and there were a fair number of people there, you know, who had refused orders to Vietnam or protested the war in other ways. There were just a few more things I wanted to cover if you have the time. Um, so I know a lot of my listeners are familiar with uh, Operation Mockingbird, which was the CIA working with the press uh, in the Cold War era. Uh, but you and your book deal with the FBI working with journalists, uh, ostensibly even you know pro-labor columnists against uh, groups like the RCP. Yeah, so there's this guy, Victor Rizal, who is a, he's a quote-unquote nationally syndicated labor columnist. I guess he ran afoul of the mob, and they threw acid in his face and blinded him. You know, pretty awful stuff. But he was a friend of, so, you know, I went to the NYU uh, Tamament Library and Victor Rizal's papers there. <laughs> and you see all these little love notes between Victor Rizal and uh J. Edgar Hoover and then William Webster and, uh, you know, all the FBI directors in between because he is uh, and, and the FBI has uh, somebody responsible for sending um, uh, handpicked intelligence to Victor Rizal. So they're sending him articles about Bob Avakian and Bruce Franklin and Eldridge Cleaver, and then it shows up in their columns. Uh, who's the other guy? This guy, Ed, there's a guy in San Francisco who plays a similar role. And they're like, oh, no, we're not FBI stooges. But then, you know, you, you kind of get these Austin Power moments. You remember when Austin Powers is in the airport and says, oh, no, that's not my penis enlarger. And then there's the book. This is my penis enlarger. You know, there, there's all these kind of things of, yes, I'm an FBI stooge. I mean, in, in so many words, I'm being a little bit flip here, but uh you were talking about Ed, Ed Montgomery, right? Ed Montgomery, thank you. Yes. Uh, interviews Bruce Franklin. It shows up in the paper, and he's just trying to get Franklin to hang himself, you know, and he's constantly leaking stuff and he's uh, doing everything he can to undermine the group. So, uh, you know, it's in, in there's, there's several of these people. There's a guy in Chicago who, uh, runs a story before the Students for Democratic Society convention. You know, that he's saying, oh, the Revolutionary Union is going to try to take over SDS. You know, so he writes this column and it shows up a couple of days before the convention when there's all this factional infighting in it. 
you know, it's just adding fuel to the fire. And then you look at the FBI says, oh, you know, we had this really great article in the Chicago Tribune. I mean, it's they don't say exactly we did, but um, the implications are clear. So you in general, you know, the media, you don't get on national television media or in the newspaper unless you accept a certain amount of terms. And there's a certain number of assumptions you make. <clears throat> Capitalism may be have abuses, but it's it's the best. American democracy may have its problems, but it's the best. Um, abortion is uh, maybe ought to be tolerated, but it, it should be limited. You know, there's all these different precepts. You know, you know, religion is is mainly a good thing. You know, in the world, and I mean, I'm not saying you have to agree with everything I'm saying, but to work in that, you have to have these assumptions. If you cross those lines, you are driven out. You're gone. You know, and you'd be gone overnight. You know, it's just so easy. But uh, so in general, the media is kind of like uh, on the team. But then you have these extraordinary characters because I'm trying to get that there's something systemic going on beyond this kind of, you know, this kind of conspiratorial nasty stuff. So just in general, you could take all the Victor Rizels away tomorrow and the stuff would still hold together. But you do have the Victor Rizels and the Edmund Montgomery, and they play a very particular role, you know, kind of on the point, a repressive point of, of pushing certain initiatives or uh, lines of attack and things like that. I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of important. I uh, used to be kind of more inclined toward conspiracy theories, I think, when I'm younger. And as I dig more deeply into it, I come to appreciate the nuance and the multitude of ways uh, that the system kind of keeps its keeps the uh, organism, you know, operating. You know, some of them are like sneaky and under the rug and CIA and FBI. Most of them are just kind of right out there, you know. And it's you know they, you know, you know it's like you 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 adopt the assumptions of the dominant society. And as a, as a result, you go along with a lot of stuff. Yeah. So, you sort of adopt the rolling ideology or the dominant culture's views. Yeah. I mean, like we're all talking about Chris Rock, you know, <laughs> you know, his summation, right. Which was an interesting thing, but step outside of that. Is there another way to look at this whole thing? And why are we talking about the Oscars? You know, <laughs> It's like, it, you know, you can only think about so many things at once. And why are we thinking about that and not, you know, the fact that uh, nobody can pay the freaking rent? <laughs> so I have to ask, um, since we can't get to every detail in the book, you know, you call this uh, one of the FBI's biggest campaigns against radicalism, against radical movements. Uh, what are some other flashpoints when it comes to the dirty tricks and covert ops that were employed against the RU uh, or the RCP? Well, you know, I've, we've gotten a number of files from the major areas where the RU was operating, New York, uh, Chicago, San Francisco, San Jose, Tacoma, Washington, and every one there's informers. So it's not just, you know, people like Don Wright, there's this couple, Larry and Betty Sue Goff, who you and I were talking about informally, who had infiltrated in San Jose. You know, the Goffs were uh, 
you know, evangelicals. I think they were down in Central America and they came back to the U.S. circa 69, 70 and said, oh, yeah, let's let's help the FBI. And they basically uh, joined the group. And um, <laughs> so Larry Goff, he's like uh, he's in a meeting, you know, when there's this split between Franklin and the RU and he, he's in a Goff initially joins the Franklin group and he's in a meeting saying, Oh yeah, I work, I work in this company and I think we could blow up tanks, you know, which is like crazy. You know, you can't do that. And if you try to do that, you're going to rain hell down on yourselves. Well, he's so, deliberately trying to get, you know, hell to yeah, rain yeah, down yeah, on yeah. He's yeah, yeah. trying to make trouble. But the, the funny thing is, is, you know, he sees that this Vince Ramos group isn't going anywhere. And he goes back to the RU. His wife has kind of got a position of leadership. And she says, oh, we, we should we should let him back in because, you know, he was just going through a phase which, you know, everybody goes through their political violence phase. I mean, that's the logic. Right. Uh, and they actually uh, did they let him back in under his leadership? And they, they got exposed soon afterwards. But, you know, this goes on and on. They're wiretapping label Bergman's. Uh, apartment. So I don't know if people know, like Deep Throat, like during the Watergate uh, era, there was this secret source who spilled the goods on Nixon. Well, it turns out it's W. Mark Felt, who was uh, one of the leading FBI agents who oversaw, you know, the campaign against the Weathermen and the Revolutionary Union. He was put on trial in 1980 for <clears throat> illegally break in, breaking into of various places. And what came out in court is that they broke into this U.S.-China People's Friendship Association offices. U.S.-China was a group that the RU worked with closely. If you wanted to visit China in the early 70s, and a lot of people did, you know, you had to work with U.S.-China. They broke into their office to steal their membership list, you know, sanctioned by W. Mark Felt, you know, then there's this really revealing thing that came out in trial where, uh, you know, they're constantly watching label Bergman and he moves and they're talking about how they can reinstitute the surveillance. And, you know, they want audio coverage and they even want video coverage outside his apartment. Now, that doesn't sound all that intense today, but in 1970, video cameras were extremely rare and sophisticated and they wanted to watch label Bergman and <clears throat> Hoover and Mark Felt are signing off on this. I mean, they're watching this guy all the time. The irony is, is Bergman is like, I don't want to be a public figure. You know, I want to kind of do it on the down low, which, you know, it just seems it's like foolish in hindsight. It's like, you know, why bother? You know, I mean, yeah, there, there is this element of like, uh, some of the security stuff is just, it's irrational because you're not actually looking at, uh, you know, how the, how the other side, as it were, is, is targeting you. You know, in 76, the FBI issued new guidelines and said, we can't go after everybody, you know, only if they're intending violence imminently can we go after them. And they actually pull out informers from the RU so circa 77, 78, there's not the same kind of surveillance. But, you know, you got to look at the FBI on its own terms, not this uh, 
notional view of they're omnipotent and they're they're you know they've got unlimited resources. You've got to actually look at you know the the constraints and limits that they're operating under. But yeah, there's there's a lot in the book about the various COINTELPRO dirty tricks, you know, poison pen letters, you know, surveillance, informant, snitch jacketing. I mean, there's more than I have memory, you know, I kind of can't just walk around with all this stuff percolating, percolating in the top of my head, I'd go insane. But yeah, there's there's quite a bit more than what I'm saying here. How do you think the book uh, contributes to our understanding of, you know, the national security state and state suppression? You know, I don't think there's a deep state. I think there is a state and, and there's a part of the state that is uh, coherent. You know, it's it's. It's got its own history, and it tries to learn from that history. If you look at the FBI, you know, in the 30s, they were pretty rudimentary on a lot of things, and then they exploded into this group of over 10,000 different employees. I'm not quite sure what the numbers are now, and they learn, and they get better. The ad hoc committee, you know, their bulletins become much more sophisticated, and they sound much more Marxist. Uh, they're not just reprinting old things. Uh, so there's a continuity that goes on and on. Uh, but at the same time, they are beholden to uh, the dominant political structures, Congress uh, and the executive and the, and the courts actually do you know, play a role in how these things operate. The CIA doesn't run the U.S. The FBI does not run the U.S. I mean, they may end up doing initiatives that... Uh, go way beyond their mandate and they might get away with it for a while. But at the end of everything, you know, they're operating within a larger uh, power framework. So, and it's important to understand it. It's like, I would argue, try not for easy explanation, just because you don't know something, you know, doesn't mean it's unknowable. You should try to dig. And, you know, we've got minds that try to fill in the blank. So if something funny happens, you know, we, you know, we construct a narrative. Well, that's fine. That's a hypothesis. But, you know, try to fill that in and prove it, you know, what's really going on. And the thing is, is there's an awful lot of information that can be garnered. There's a lot of FBI stuff, even online. I mean, I think you mentioned the, the JFK uh, Records Act. Yeah, I, released... I wanted to talk about that, actually, because, you know, I've had this uh, interesting back and forth with uh, different guests and different people about the JFK Records Act and the release of files related to the Kennedy assassination. And I've often made the argument that regardless of someone's view on the Kennedy assassination, a lot of these files that got released due to, uh, you know, uh, things like the Oliver Stone movie or people pushing for, you know, uh, files related to JFK being released, uh, it's actually had a positive effect in a way because we now have a lot of files that have come out and been made public that don't necessarily even relate directly to the assassination, but information about, you know, covert ops and things of that nature. Exactly. I mean, I, Connor and I wrote a couple articles for Jacobin last year on Fred Hampton, and a lot of it was pulled from those files. You know, the informant reports on Fred Hampton are in those files because they're tangentially related to the, the JFK stuff. Because, you know, when you get into the world of intelligence, it's 
everything tends to get connected. That's why you got Glenn Beck up there with all those charts. See, and this is this, and this is this, and you know, it's all, I mean, they, they are, they all kind of swim in the same pond as it were. So there are these connections, even if they're tertiary. I mean, uh, I, I don't know. How, I mean, Bob Dylan, right. Gives a drunken speech at an award thing where he says, you know, in a way I can understand Oswald and he ends up in the Kennedy Kennedy files, you know, well, Bob Dylan had nothing to do with that. He's just got an opinion, a drunk opinion, you know? <laughs> so, but, you know, now we know they had a Bob Dylan file, don't we? You know, it's there. So it's really interesting. Like the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting because I think it, it uh, shows the value that has come out of these JFK files. Yeah. And then how do you read them is that that's the hard part, really. You know, do you read them based on accepting whoever wrote these never expected them to be public and they were trying to accomplish a certain thing. So then you can begin to evaluate it versus I think a lot of times we read it like, oh, the FBI, they know everything and they can do everything and they've got all this power. And, you know, yeah, they can do a lot of things. They do have a lot of power. They also have limits. Um, and they they screw up and they get things wrong. And so and then evaluate that next to memoirs or press reports and try to get a, a fuller picture. And, you know, it's possible. And, and, you know, I think there's a need for more of that. Do you recall how the uh, Kennedy files played a role in um, in heavy radicals, the research for it? Uh, not so much. I mean, we did do some. We found a certain amount about the ad hoc committee in those files because the ad hoc committee was created in 62, right at, around the time of the assassination. And the Fair Play for Cuba committee attracted a lot of leftists. You know, Fair Play for Cuba committee collapsed after the Kennedy assassination. You know, the Fair Play for Cuba committee is... It's where it's related, but is it really related? And uh, but that's why you know the certain amount of the ad hoc stuff w was out in there. You know the the stuff on the CIA agent Sugar, right? He was in the Fair Play for Cuba committee. He reports on Don Wright, who's in the RU. So and that ends up in the Kennedy dump. But a lot of what we found was just I started with COINTELPRO New Left, which was on you know the FBI had. It's this thing called the FBI, the vault. So you can get it there. And then you we cut out there for a second. Things. You said uh, you uh, cut out it, right at the FBI had. The FBI has a website called the, the vault, the FBI vault, and you can get the uh, COINTELPRO new left folders there. But then we started asking the FBI for records. And if the investigation isn't active, they send it to the National Archives. So we got a bunch of files on organizations and individuals in the National Archives. And they're less redacted because they're ostensibly they're dead files. And then there's all this information in them and you get the full scope. And, you know, we've only got a fraction of the RU stuff, but yet we have tens of thousands of pages. The ad hoc committee file has 17,000 pages of which we probably have 30 or 40, you know, so there, there's just a huge amount of information and, also, the FBI had some successes. People don't quite get that. You know, they they had some successes beyond the COINTELPRO, which that's subject for a whole other discussion, I guess. I was going to say, you mentioned the uh, CIA's asset that was codenamed Sugar. That's um, 
Richard Gibson, right? Yes, thank you for that. Uh, yeah, you're a little more up on it. I think you probably read the book more, more soon. You know, more contemporarily than I have. It's it's been a few months since I picked it up. Yeah, Richard Gibson, Sugar. He's he's a character. He, and he had uh, some kind of romantic relationship with one of the RU people. That's another sneaky, nasty things these people do. You know, you know, kind what of. What was the big? Thing. Just out of curiosity, what was the big uh, difference between the original book and this revised and updated edition? Well, uh, I have more on the ad hoc committee, more on Don Wright, uh, more on the actual size and number of these groups. Um, and, and also just arguing that Maoism has been written out and it shouldn't be. Uh, and also that uh, if you want to argue that was there a Maoist party in the U.S., there, there, there was. It was the RURCP and, uh, you know, clarify some of its clarification, but some of it is uh, uh, firming up some of our original conclusions. We didn't know that the ad hoc committee was seven informants. You know, we got those documents later. So that's one of the things in there, the Richard Gibson sugar thing. We didn't know that, you know, so, so that was new. So it, it just kind of uh, galvanizes a lot of our original assessments. And then uh, numerically, I think we, we downscaled the numbers, you know, cause I think that's important. I mean, it's, it's fun to, to say that you're bigger than you are, but it's not helpful. Um, from a historian standpoint. Before closing out here, uh, maybe you can give my listeners an idea of uh, two of your more recent books, uh, The Folk Singers in the Bureau and Whole World in an Uproar, Music, Rebellion and Repression, 1955 to 1972. Uh, I'm assuming some people will look at those two books and say, oh, uh, music uh, this time around, what does that have to do with uh your previous research into American malice and the FBI. Uh, but I think there is a connection there. Yeah, there is. Uh, I was going to do a book on 60s music and repression. I figured, oh, there must be a bunch of FBI stuff on Jefferson Airplane and MC5 and uh, Nina Simone. And I started looking and I couldn't find it. Uh, but I did find out that, you know, there was an FBI file on Woody Guthrie. And I said, well, that's interesting. And then I said, well, so I know there's a file on Pete Seeger. So I got that. I said, well, what about their friends? People like uh, Alan Lomax, the musicologist, or uh, Bess Lomax's sister, or uh, Josh White, the uh, black blues singer. And, you know, they all got files. Sis Cunningham's got a file. Lee Hayes from this group, The Weaver, he's got a file. There's every one of them has a file. So I'm like, well, there's a book. And it's it's dialectically or intimately related to the suppression of the Communist Party in the early 50s. So that was my book. Uh, there's a lot of FBI stuff in there. Uh, but then it came back to the 60s book. And, you know, there isn't, you know, there's some FBI stuff. The FBI liked it if you were in a hierarchical Marxist-Leninist organization. So there's a huge file on the folk singer Dave Van Ronk, uh, who was a Trotskyist. You know, Van Rock uh, was a mentor to Dylan. Dylan slept on his couch. You know, Dave Van Rock and his partner, wife at the time, Terry Thal, you know, they hugely influenced him. Uh, Dylan's first girlfriend, Susie Rotolo, went to Cuba with the Progressive Labor Party. She was in the Communist 
youth group for a while. She's not a communist herself, but, you know, she's in that orbit. Her parents are all leftists. So there's all these kind of things. Phil Oaks, never in an organization, but, you know, pretty sizable FBI file. So I've got the, I real I realized there was a book to be done, but not just on FBI files. It was also, you know, the systemic nature, you know, Spiro Agnew has this, uh, famous quote to say, you know, look, it isn't just, it's not like all this music and such is just one big conspiracy. It's more like it it challenges this way of ours, you know, this way of our, you know, and, you know, then you can see the, the drug arrests of the Grateful Dead or Sly and the Family Stone or Jefferson Airplane in a different context. Uh, Airplane in particular is, you know, 6970 is is very much a revolutionary group. I mean, they later on said, no, that that really wasn't true. But they actually are. And there's riots at their concerts and they're always getting arrested. And I've got both the FBI files in that context, but also the the more systemic, you know, you know, these seminal events like Woodstock and Altamont. It's like, well, there's no permits you know, you know, we we're not going to let you play in Golden Gate Park, Rolling Stones. We're not going to let you play in the Speedway just north of the city. You you got to go out here to Altamont. So, I suddenly see another factor in play at Altamont. You know, yeah, the Rolling Stones are are reckless, and they hire the Rolling Stones, and it, it's kind of an awful day, you know. But at the same time, you know, it's. You know, the same, you know, it happens a couple of days after Fred Hampton is killed. So, you know, there's a lot of awful shit going on. But I mean, it's more complex than that. And I write about it. But but yeah, those two books kind of came together and a little different. But, you know, it's I guess it's kind of a Marxist thing. You know, it's like things or maybe a Maoist thing. Things proceed through struggle. You know, it's not this just gradual Pacific thing where, oh, I've got a contrary view and we can agree to disagree. It's like, no, we disagree and I'm going to stop you out. You know, I was going to say, I'm really looking forward to reading uh, your book on folk singers and, and surveillance of folk singers, because uh, you know, I think people forget sometimes just how radical a lot of folk music was. You know, it's really weird. I remember when the um, that popular TV show Weeds came out a few years back, the comedy show with um Mary Louise Parker. And I had at the beginning of that show, the song, uh, little boxes, you know, with the, uh, the lyrics about everyone yeah, living in little boxes. Yeah. All made of ticky tacky and they all look just the same. Yeah. Melvina Reynolds wrote it. And it's like a huge assault on sort of, um, suburbia and conformist middle-class attitudes. It's a really radical song. It's been turned into like a commodity for TV shows now, but it's an example of how radical folk music was at the time. Or I Had a Hammer was uh, written around the time of the Smith Act trials in 1949. And when Pete Seeger was called in front of Congress, they were like, you know, isn't that song about these these communists? And, you know, it kind of was. So, But then Trini Lopez does it. And it's just fun. Right? Oh, if I had a hammer. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, Melvina Reynolds, I'm, I'm waiting on her FBI file. She was a Communist Party uh, member, I'm pretty sure. So. Uh, just for my listeners, uh, if I have listeners that aren't necessarily Maoists or aren't necessarily um, on on the... By the way, I'm not a Maoist. I'm a historian. I'm a, I'm a lapsed Maoist. I guess that's the word. <laughs> well, I, I guess what I was going to get at is I think that this book, 
regardless of your sort of political point of view, although I think it will be uh, of great interest to the left, um, how do you think this book uh, could be useful or interesting to people from other political persuasions, like even uh, someone that's maybe a, a like left liberal um, or, or just people from different uh, outlooks or just Americans in general? Why, why should they maybe uh, pick these books up? What do you think they'll get out of it? Yeah, well, I appreciate that question. I, I, because I know some people they're looking for a blueprint, like oh, the ad hoc committee. Oh, you know, maybe that's going on now too. And I can't say that it is or it isn't, but I think methodologically is probably the main lesson that that look, it's possible to know this stuff. Uh, and don't just go with superficial summations. Don't read one or two articles and then ah. I know how to do it. It's like, you know, try to pull on these threads, deep, deep, dig deeper into it. You know, kind of look at it multiple sources. You know, look at look at what the police are saying. Look at what the FBI are saying. Why are they saying what they're saying? You know, what are they trying to accomplish? And then look at the people who are targeted. You know, what are they saying? And and why do they mean? You know, it's it's like if you start to look at it from a multiple set of angles. Um, you know, I think this is actually kind of Mao had this this whole notion, no investigation, no right to speak. You know, if you dig a little deeper than the surface, you can probably under. I did not know when we set out to write the book, we would discover so much. But we were constantly following the threads. And I know Connor played a really important role. It, it, it just scouring these documents. You know, some of it was work. You have for have to go to Stanford to get some of these files, but they'll let you look at them, you know, if you're a serious researcher and stuff. So I'd say methodologically is is the main thing. Uh, and you can see that if you are uh, contrary to the status quo, you can expect to get pushback of, you know, varying degrees, you know, starting from zero to 100. And, you know, how you choose to counter that, I think, is up to you you know, you or the group you're in and stuff, but it's important to understand more deeply uh, where it's coming from, the ways it's coming and and how you can try to understand it. And then if you're doing righteous work, you know, how you should, you know, withstand it and stuff. Any advice you have in closing for people that, uh, I've had a lot of guests on that scour through and request uh, documents from the Freedom of Information Act requests. Uh, so any advice to, uh, you know, FOIA heads that may be listening? Uh, no, it's it's getting really rough. I mean, my... Really? Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of a soft, almost like a soft uh, revocation of FOIA. Like, as a result of COVID, you know, uh, the National Archives said, oh, it's 39-month wait period. Well, you know, that, that becomes a huge hill to climb where you're going to wait four, five, six, seven years to get stuff. Uh, but there's a lot of stuff out there now. The Kennedy stuff is there. The FBI Volta stuff there. You know, do some deep Google searching. I suspect your listeners probably have tips and tricks, you know, beyond what I know. You can look at our book. We reference where we got everything from. So, you know, some of the universities are holding archives and they're holding, you know, some of these individuals like... Uh, James Foreman, he donated his paper to a school in Queens and he had gotten his files. So, I mean, there's places these things are squirreled away. Uh, the Tamman Archive at 
Uh, New York University has a huge corpus of, of files, including a National Lawyers Guild did a suit against the FBI. So there's some amazing stuff in there that hasn't been gone through. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is read my books. <laughs> there, there's some, some uh, read the books, look at the references. Uh, there might be some tips for you. Uh, maybe not. Uh, I, I was just going to add to that real quickly. I was going to say the thing with FOIA, I think people think it's more daunting than it really is. Like, Really, no, you just, just have to, you have to have an obituary for the person you're requesting a file on, and then they have to they'll get back to you and say no, or they'll say yes. Here's file, you know. And most of the time, they say no, and it's it's just because they didn't look hard enough, you know. Right, and then you heckle them again six months down yeah, the line. Yeah. <laughs> the problem is, is the a lot of the good stuff goes to the National Archives, and the National Archives just seems to have a very thin staff. So, uh, I find that very frustrating. So. Uh, I can't really give you a, a happy answer. Well, thank you again, Aaron Leonard, for coming on Parallax Views. Uh, let my listeners know how they can get a copy of your books and uh, anything else you want to say in closing. I always like to ask uh, my guests what they hope listeners get out of the conversation we've been having. Well, uh, I think I've kind of said it. Uh, I, I do think that, you know, employ critical thinking and, and try to uh, – attack this from a multitude of, you know, put yourself in the place of the people who are producing these things to try to understand this stuff more deeply. So, you know, and, but, you know, definitely keep doing it because the, you know, they're keeping the, some of these bad secrets are being kept for a reason. And, and that's, that's something that ought to be challenged. Well, in a way, the other thing you're doing is you're restoring the historical record, right? Because I mean, before you wrote this book, I, I think there was a lot less, interest or even uh, historical thought about uh, Maoism in the United States, this book comes along, you're shedding light on something that was previously sort of ignored. Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah, I think that's well put. Yeah. And my listeners, of course, can get your books through Zero Books and Repeater, right? Yeah. Or, you know, if you're comfortable with Amazon, it's all there. Uh, also, Penguin Random House, um, it has a multitude. Um, they have several sites where you can get uh, the publications. So, Well, thank you again, Aaron J. Leonard. Okay. Thank you. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Aaron J. Leonard, co-author of Heavy Radicals, the FBI's secret war on America's malists. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views. With Jerlax View to Parallax Jerlax View with Jerlax View. The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. It's nothing else. If we don't do it, others will be doing this like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm. I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, 
uh, internet and all this new digital stuff. It's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.